I don't know about you, but uh, finding rest in December is usually a hopeless pursuit. <laughs> I mean, there are cards to, to write and mail and gifts to, to buy and, uh, and to send and, and um, decorations to put up and meals to plan and guests to invite. And boy, I tell you, December can be kind of crazy. I think this year, though, it might be a little bit different. I went uh, on Black Friday to uh, Best Buy to buy a, a new television set with all the bells and whistles. I was so excited about that. It was actually my Christmas present to my wife. Well, I told her that's what it was, yeah. And, um, and I, I came in and I found a salesperson on the floor almost immediately. And uh, so we're talking. I'm kind of looking around and noticing things are kind of quiet. And I said, you know, how, how's business? This is Black Friday. This is like your big, big day. And he said, well, he said, this is what it's like. He said, normally at this time, I would be talking to six people at once, selling them a television. He said, you're the only one. I'm just selling it to you today. And I wrapped up things in about 15 minutes, and I went home. I mean, things are looking different. We may have more time to rest this December than we've ever had before, and it could be a good thing. We're in our Advent journey uh, this year by singing our way through Charles Wesley's great Advent carol, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And so far what we've discovered is that Jesus' coming was all a part of God's plan to rescue us from captivity to those things that, that keep us in bondage, principally our very own sin nature. Sometimes we are our own worst enemies. And today we're looking at the next verse, which is this. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Now finding uh, rest isn't really a part of our American culture, is it? (laughs) Um, Bon Jovi sang a song entitled, I'll Sleep When I'm Dead. And I think that's a lot of us, that's kind of our mentality. It kind of expresses uh, how we choose Uh, to live our lives. But have you ever wondered what drives this restlessness? I think a lot of it is fear. What I've noticed over the years is that some of the highest achieving people are some of the most insecure people that I know. They need people to love them. I mean, we think to ourselves, you know, if I stay busy, if I say yes to everybody, if I work long hours, if I get a lot of money in the bank, then everybody will love me. Uh, Tony Dungy, I was listening to him a couple years ago. He was doing a Super Bowl breakfast. And he talked about his decision to retire as the head coach of the Indianapolis Colts. He wanted to retire when he was at the top of his game, but he was struggling. And he couldn't figure out why it was so hard. And then he finally realized success is addictive. (laughs) That it feels great. To be admired. I think as long as fear drives you, you're going to be stressed out. I think as, as long as, 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 as uh, fear drives you, you're going to be full of guilt and shame. You know, when I have a few moments of downtime, I feel guilty. <laughs> Anybody else like that? Is it just me? Yeah, so a couple nights ago, um, um, I didn't have any church meetings, which is kind of unusual. I didn't feel like reading a book, and there was nothing on television that I wanted to watch. And so I just kind of sat there for a couple hours, and near the end, I was feeling, finding myself depressed. I'm like, why? Well, I know why. 
I only think that I have value. I only think I'm important if I'm getting something done. What fear drives you? Do you know? In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, the author says this. He says, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Do we fear death? Maybe right now you fear an illness, not having enough money, losing your job, fear of judgment, fear of not measuring up to some impossible high standards. You see, our, our Advent song understands that until we deal with our fears and sins, we will not find that rest. So what does Wesley mean by that? By the phrase, let us find our rest in thee. Well, this language comes from the book of Hebrews. And the author warns uh, his readers against unbelief and allowing sin to harden their hearts towards God. And he uses the example of, of the Israelites in the wilderness, of how their disobedience and their unbelief prevented them from entering into the promised land, into the land of Canaan, their home. But in chapter 4 of Hebrews, it becomes clear that he isn't talking about land, a physical land anymore. He says, therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Okay, so what is he talking about now? And you might be thinking, well, he's talking about heaven. He's talking about that eternal rest when we die and go to heaven. But he's not. Listen, verse 9. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. So clearly, he means it as something that is to be enjoyed in the here and now, something that we can obtain in the present. So he must have in mind what the ideal qualities of the Sabbath rest are, what God always intended the Sabbath rest to be, mainly peace, well-being, and security. I mean, those are things that we're ultimately striving for, aren't we? This would have meant so much to his readers, who it seems were experiencing a great deal of hardship and were in danger of renouncing their faith because of those difficulties. So how do we enter into this rest? Well, let's read chapter 2, verses 17 through 18. For this reason, he, that is Jesus, had to be made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those, that is us, who are also being tempted. Now, Hebrews is the only book in the New Testament that refers to Jesus as our high priest. And he does it ten times. 
That's because the theme of the entire book is the work of Christ in accomplish, accomplishing atonement for our sin. Now, normally we preachers talk about atonement when? Holy Week and Easter, right? But the writer here is making this direct connection between the incarnation, God becoming one of us, and the atonement. And he says that Jesus was fully human in every way. Not just partially human, fully, completely, totally human. That he might make atonement for the sins of the people. He goes on to say that his full humanity enabled Jesus to perform the function of the high priest. Now, remember, it was the role of the high priest to represent the people before God. And once a year, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would, would take the blood of a sacrifice, he would go into the Holy of Holies, and he would sprinkle the blood on the Ark of the Covenant, thus making atonement for the sins of the nation once more. The writer of Hebrews is making the point that on the cross, Jesus acted as our high priest by offering his own blood as an atonement for all people and for all sin in all places and for all times. It was done. It was completed. Our sin problem dealt with. So he was both priest and the sacrifice. You see, sin creates fear. But when we accept what God has done in Christ on the cross, our sins are forgiven. Our sins are wiped clean. We no longer fear judgment. We no longer fear death. We take that first step into that promised rest of peace and security and well-being. So God's rest can become a present reality in your lives. Would you like that? Now notice in verse 11, he says, make every effort to enter that rest. So there is this tension here in, in the writing of Hebrews. There's this tension between the indicative, that is, we have, we have entered the rest, and the imperative, we are to strive to enter into that rest. It, it is both a, a present reality and yet also a future possibility. So when we confess faith in Christ, we have entered into that rest, and yet we still have to strive to get there. Does that make sense? It is both realized and yet to be realized. And that begins as we begin to understand that we are people of worth. <laughs> because God loves us. Because he made us. Because he died for us. And I can't improve upon the value of my life any more than that. I need to learn contentment in who I am and what I have. And until we figure that out, we're always going to be driven people. Now, it should be obvious that money won't give us that rest that we're looking for. It should be obvious that, that making a living is but the means. Life itself is the goal, folks. And so rest begins by being right with God. If you put God first, then Jesus said everything else will be taken care of. But keep him first. Now, there's nothing wrong with making money, and there's nothing wrong with making lots of money. I mean, making money uh, through honest work is a vital part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
the writer uh, of 3 John uh, writes to someone named Gaius, and he says, I pray that in all things thou mayest prosper and be in good health, even as thy soul prospers. So he's praying that, that Gaius might prosper financially just as far as it was consistent with the prosperity, the well-being of his soul. But in many cases, wealth can sicken the soul. It has that power. Prosperity can make fools of us if we're not careful. Bud Post won $16 million in the Pennsylvania lottery. And this is what he says about his experience. He says, I wish it had never happened. Seems like I could do something good with $16 million. But his girlfriend sued him for part of the money. Yeah. And, and, and then his brother, his brother was arrested for hiring a hitman to try to kill him. His two other siblings talked him into investing in their new businesses. Guess what happened? Both of them went belly up. Even Bud himself spent some time in jail because he shot a gun at the bill collector who came to his door. Within a year of winning that, he was a million dollars in debt. No wonder, he said, I wish it had never happened. Money won't free us from fear. Listen, every time we complain, every time we grumble, every time we express our envy or our jealousy, we're expressing unrest. And it's when we're unhappy with our present circumstances. It's when we have this uneasy state of mind because of things that are happening in our life. So is being in a state of rest saying, I'm happy about what's going on in my life right now? Is it liking your personal present circumstances? No, not necessarily. But neither is it being stoic and trying to control your mind so that uh, suffering and pain no longer enters in your consciousness. That's not what it's about. It's not about being numb to suffering. And it's not about, about simply settling for your present circumstances. It's not about learning to settle for those things in our lives that are less than what they ought to be. I, I knew that, that if I came home with bad grades, that my parents weren't going to allow me to be happy with, with that, you know. They wanted me to do better. They insisted that I do better. They told me I'd better do better. <laughs> this was not an area I was to be content in. This was not an area I was to rest in. I would say that the whole idea of spiritual growth is built on this idea of a holy discontent. I mean, there has to be some kind of creative discontent with that which is less than it ought to be in our lives. I mean, I don't know about you, but I feel like I want more and more of God. I, I want to go deeper in my spiritual life. I, I never feel completely satisfied with where I'm at. I mean, Jesus himself, he talked about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. And I've never felt like I've really arrived, and I doubt if I ever will. This kind of discontent can be a good thing. It moves us to, to go higher up and further in. And contentment is not a life without problems. In fact, Jesus said, in the world, you will have tribulation. Not maybe, but you will. Life can be hard. Mother Teresa was such a person. She had no political base. She had no power base. She had no wealth. She was no beauty queen. 
She wasn't an intellectual. And yet she had the admiration of the world. Did you know that when she first started her ministry in the streets of Calcutta, that she was obstructed at every turn by the government who viewed her with suspicion? She and her nuns were oftentimes insulted and threatened, and sometimes they threw uh, rocks at her as, as they went through uh, Calcutta. Until one morning, Mother Teresa noticed a gathering of people outside a Hindu temple uh, devoted to the worship of the Hindu god Akali. And as she drew nearer, she saw a man lying there in front of the temple, and his eyes rolled back in his head, and all the blood was, was gone, drained from his face, and, and uh, she realized he was a Brahmin priest. Now, nobody dared to touch him because they saw that he had the symptoms of cholera. And so no one touched him except Mother Teresa and her nuns who carried him back to their hospice. Night and day, they nursed him, and eventually he recovered. And this is what he said to her. He said, for 30 years, I have worshipped a Kali of stone, but I have meant in this gentlewoman a Kali of flesh and blood. And never again were stones thrown at Mother Teresa and her nuns. And so to find this rest that, that we're singing about, we have to learn to ignore our ad verse circumstances or our conditions. That doesn't mean that we ignore the facts. It's just that the facts are not the most important thing. It's faith that ha helps us to, to overcome our adverse circumstances. I mean, Mother Teresa could have said, you know what, they don't want me here. Let's pack up and let's go home. We don't need this. But she learned to overcome. She chose to ignore her circumstances. She chose to do the right thing. She, she, she chose to follow God's calling upon her life. And eventually she overcame her adverse circumstances. The answer, the solution, eventually came. You see, rest and contentment come in winning those small daily victories as we obey God and follow the goals, follow the plan, follow the mission that he has called us to. So where do we find this rest? Where do we find this contentment we're looking for? I, I think, first of all, it begins by helping others to succeed. I think the contented person is the person who is interested in helping other people find contentment. In, in the business world, it's the business that helps its customers to be successful that becomes a successfully run business. We were on vacation some years ago, we were driving through North Carolina on our way to the beach, and we had to stop for gas, and I pulled into what I thought was the self-serve section, and all of a sudden there was a guy there, and he was putting gas into my car, and uh, what in the world is going on? I hadn't seen that since the 70s, and, uh, and then he's washing my windshield. And then he's asking me, can, can I check the oil in your car? And I'm like, I'm sorry, I must, have, I must have turned into your service bay. I thought this was the self-serve section. He says, oh, no, you're in the right place. Why are you doing this? Because we want our customers to be happy. <laughs> See, when we look for rest and contentment, we need to make sure that includes the well-being, the peace, the security of others. It's amazing how that works, but that's a kingdom principle. That is, you invest in others, the thing that you're looking for is returned to you. 
Now, that doesn't mean pleasing everyone. Don't get me wrong. Jesus said, woe to you if all men speak well of you. I mean, try to please everybody and you won't please anybody because you'll be vacillating back and forth. You can't make promises to everybody. Well, actually, you can. If you're a presidential candidate, you can make promises to everybody <laughs> and you don't have to worry about it. John Wesley said that uh, if he went two or three days without somebody giving him a hard time for preaching the gospel, he must be doing something wrong. But contented people know the right thing to do, and they do it regardless. And if you're doing the will of God, you will more than likely run into opposition. But the contented person must face that reality because the only person we really need to please is God. You see, rest and contentment is found in centering our lives on Jesus. It's not about a self-centered life. It's about a God-centered life. And so Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, that's the secret to a contented life. Paul is, is saying that, that, that Christ who is within him infuses him with strength to, so that no matter what happens, he can cope with it. He can face uh, he, uh, his situation. He can measure up to it. And so contentment is taking your present situation and it is trusting that though you don't have the resources to deal with it, to handle it, that Christ does. And so contentment comes through the resources that God provides, not the ones that you do. And so we enter into God's rest by knowing that we are loved and forgiven. I don't think you can find true love or true rest or release from fear until we have a relationship with Jesus. I think that's where it begins. And at that moment, we begin our, our journey into this place of rest. And then it grows as we continue that long process of, of living and, and wrestling with the ups and downs of life. It's a process. And we need to practice it all of our days. Those little things that we do, those, those six habits that we practice, you know, of, of serving and, and developing long-term relationships in our small group and, 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 and worshiping and spending time with God in, in Scripture and in, and in prayer and, and, and helping others to, to find Christ. Those things that we do in a daily practice, they strengthen us, they build us up. See, I don't wait until the bottom falls out and I'm needing a lifeline from God. I, I do this on a daily basis so but when that time of crisis comes, guess what? It's already there. I can build my life upon it. That strength, it's already inside of me. This year, Christmas is going to be different, amen? And you may be forced to slow down. You may be forced to change. You may be forced to do things a little bit different. And you may not like it. But contentment is knowing that you have all that you need for the present. It's knowing that when you're in difficulty, that Christ is in you and all of his resources are available for you at that moment. So what are you facing right now? What are you afraid of? What weakness is wearing you down? What chronic condition do you live with? What are those circumstances right now that you're struggling with? What demolished dreams are you dealing with? 
hear me. Whatever it is that you're struggling with, God is saying to you today, you don't have to like it, but don't give in to them. You don't have to live in this state of anxiety and fear anymore. You don't have to worry about death or, or illness or, or judgment because you have a high priest named Jesus who has experienced everything that you've experienced and everything that you've gone through. He's gone through it, and he is able to help you when you find yourself tempted and ready to give up. In the summer of my 10th year of life, I learned to deal with one of my big fears. Well, kind of. <laughs> it comes back from time to time, but it's the fear of heights. And it happened to me in my hometown of Athens at our community uh, swimming pool. Uh, for years, I had watched in admiration and terror my three older sisters and their friends climb the 35 steps up to the high dive at Crystal Pool and jump off into the water. I avoided the high dive. But when some of my friends, when some of my own buddies started plunging off the high dive, I knew my day was coming. I knew I was going to have to save face because I knew that being uncool was worse than plunging to my certain death. <laughs> right? It's true. And so one day I climbed up those 35 steps and I, with fear and trembling, I walked out to the edge of that diving board and I looked down and I swear it was 300 feet down to the bottom. And I thought, mm-mm, I'm not going to die today. There's no reason why I have to die today. And I started to turn around and walk back, and my friends were back there. They were laughing at me, my older sisters. So I knew I had to face it, and I did. I walked back out to the end of the board, and I looked down, and there was my dad. Come on, you can do it. <laughs> I believe in you. Go ahead and jump. And I thought, well, if dad believes in me, if he thinks I can do it, why not? And I crept out to the edge, and I took the plunge, and I lived. <laughs> My friends, Jesus, the perfect human, experiences everything that we experience, our fragility, our fear, our suffering, our temptation, and death for the purpose of destroying the devil and death once and for all and to bring us into his perfect rest. And today he may be calling you to jump, to jump into his arms, to find that true rest, to find that contentment that is ours as the people of God. And so whatever fear today, whatever fear you're facing, God is calling you. God is calling you to step off, surrender it to him. Let's pray. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our sins and fears, release us. Let us find our rest in thee. Amen.